you know, think about it, Dan. It's um, we're living in these troubled times. Let's say everyone is either consciously or unconsciously completely daunted and overwhelmed by the trouble we're in. They're either in touch with that or they're not. But you know, all these old stories, fundamentally, they're about an individual um, triumphing or finding their way through navigating um, you know, the terrain in overwhelming odds. And we need to hear those stories again and again and again. And if they are fanciful, you know, if they don't appear to relate to this modern world, well, that's fine. As G.K. Chesterton said, you know, it's not, it doesn't matter whether dragons really exist or not. It's what matters is whether they can be beaten. And these messages are sort of so important for us, but also for our soul life. You know, we do have a soul life and this world that we live in doesn't, doesn't do very well in recognising that. You're listening to the Spaceship Earth podcast with me, Dan Burgess. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the show. This is uh, episode 18. Um, Hope you're doing well out there. Uh, Really appreciate you tuning in. There's a lot of podcasts out there in the world, which is a good thing in my book because it means that uh, we are collectively seeking information uh, entertainment, stimulation, provocation, and lots more Asians from sources that aren't uh, corporatized and uh, peddling fear and stories and telling everyone to get into line and believe. So I think that's a good thing that there's a lot of podcasts going out there. But what it does mean is that there's a lot of choice. So I really appreciate you tuning in to listen to me. Um, today I am down in the bottom of my garden uh, and I am bringing to you an episode which I recorded last month down in Devon um, with a wonderful human being called Chris Salisbury um, and Chris has been um, very inspirational in my life uh, in the last sort of six, seven years probably since I first met him uh, and I know he's also catalyzing and inspiring a lot of people uh, of other people's lives as well through his work both uh, which is diverse um, as a storyteller a um, uh, an outdoor educator which sounds a bit dry which is not what Chris is but someone who is um, helping people learn their way into the natural world Um, and someone who I think is helping open up the human imagination to the more than human world. And Chris does uh, spends a lot of his time working in the, the diverse various landscapes of Devon with all kinds of people um, from kids to adults um, to people in business to all sorts and effectively helping them, helping us um, through courses that he designs, uh, yeah, sort of open up more deeply, I think, to the um, awe and wonder of the natural world and uh, develop practices and awareness which help us open our imagination more widely to all of that. Um, and I was down in uh, Devon uh, last month, so I had a chance to catch up with Chris quite briefly. So this is quite a... It's quite a short episode, but nonetheless, um, something I hope you enjoy. It was great for me to catch up with with Chris. Um, I'll put all the stuff in the show notes. Chris set up an enterprise about nearly 20 years ago now called Wildwise. 
Um, and if you're interested in any of this, do check them out. They do all kinds of interesting courses, um, short courses, longer courses um, that um, I would say are potentially transformational. Um, so do do look them up. And he also has a, an extraordinary um, crew of guides and Sherpas uh, who are um, also leading and guiding a variety of these different um, approaches. So yeah, a really interesting organization. Do check them out. Um, yeah, it's early May here and um, actually I've just uh, been away for a little bit, um, which has been a real treat and trying to kind of also just slow down and notice this shift in seasons that's going on and uh, we um, uh, myself and uh, Seema my wife and our wonderful kids all um, all took a bit of time the other night to just uh, notice the arrival of the Festival of Beltane the sort of passing of spring into summer um, and that was a really cool thing to do just to sort of uh, reflect a little bit on the sort of colder winter months that we've been through and what uh, we've been through as a family and thinking ahead to um, the warmth uh, and the growth of summer and the growth potential um, and we uh, had a little ritual around a fire and we uh, let go of some uh, some stuff um, from from these kind of winter months and um, put some intentions out into the universe which was uh, which was marvelous I highly recommend it um, uh, so yes um, and that very much I think connects into this conversation with Chris um, uh, we talked quite a bit about about that about how you develop your own your own practices back in your own lives um, which maybe can uh, can help us um, keep this kind of imagination alive um, and our connection um, and our awareness of uh, the beyond human world, the more human world, and, and how maybe at this moment in time with all the kind of, um, with all the troubles we face um, through climate breakdown, through ecological collapse, all these kind of big, gnarly, complicated things that are really starting to accelerate. But why maybe at this time, this awakening, this reconnection to the natural world, this ability to really um, build these relationships into, uh, into all life feel like a really important and also a really regenerative um, opportunity for us to step into so anyway on that note I will um, let's get on this is a great uh, conversation with um, a super interesting man who's doing some uh, some uh, really important work on the spaceship earth right now so this is um, episode 18 with Chris Salisbury from Wildwise enjoy Chris welcome to the uh the Spaceship Earth podcast. Thank you, Dan. <laughs> what a marvellous bit of sci-fi technology is all around me here. Isn't it? Extraordinary. Right here. We're here in, uh, we're here in your back garden. <laughs> in Devon. How are you today? You know, I'm not too bad. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. Very operational. That's good. A little bit full of cold and 
Apologies if I dribble on your microphone. That's <laughs> mm. <laughs> right. No one, as long as no one can hear it. I don't know. Does dribble have sound? <laughs> <laughs> um, you've just come back from Australia, haven't you? Quite recently. Yes. Yes, I have. I've been through wintering over there, which I must say was beneficial. A lot of that gold and medicine streaming down. It was good <coughs> health-wise. Not quite enough wild adventures out there. Uh-huh. A few. Um, but with two little kids in tow, it sort of limits one's you know aspirations in that regard. But it's yeah. a beautiful, strange, fierce, wild country, and I'm you know more and more every time I go keen to explore the interior. But yeah, too hot in our winter. Yeah, to, get to the desert. Where were you? On the east coast, just on that rainforest strip of what's left of it. Right down the east end, quite near Byron Bay, around that hub. <coughs> yeah, that's where my wife's family is from. Mm. I'm just checking my, my thing's doing its thing. I think it is. Yeah, you should always <laughs> check that. <don't laughs> exactly. Um, and did you? Did I? Did I notice you were? Because sometimes you go off and do. Um, you've taught practitioner in Asia and stuff, don't you? Well, that's right. So um, I sort of, you know, I'm a, a storyteller, mm. <coughs> and um, I sort of. Uh, took those skills into another setting, I suppose, which is the International Schools Theatre Association. They've been going a very, very long time, and they put on these theatre events for school children around the world. Um, and I'm invited in, basically, to offer some narrative skills. Um, it's all in the context of ensemble theatre making, so a little something out of nothing. Some of that good old magic. Um, it's a marvellous operation and lots of professional theatre makers come in to sort of help out. So it's a bit of my own professional development working with them and a delight to offer some of that old magic of story mm. into the mix as well. And so, yes, I was in Thailand, you know, doing that and also in um, Indonesia. Hmm. Hmm. So you, so let's give, let's give the listeners some context because I, I mean, I, I met you about, I think it's probably nearly seven years ago now. Um, but I'd love to, could you give a little bit of a sense of, because you, you know, you do a few things, but you've had a pretty interesting journey. Could you give people a sense of how the work you, where this work, you know, your practice today, where it, where it started, how it started? Because you started in theatre, didn't you? Is that right? Well, uh, let's go back a little yeah, further, Dan. Right I mean, let's not give you the whole life story. <laughs> Just some so of it. Everyone's interested in that. But, um, you know, my parents, God bless them, mm. um, moved around a bit. But wherever they moved to, not really by design, their conscious intention anyway, but by luck, stroke of luck, I could walk off the housing estate <coughs> and I could get to some woods. Yeah. And those woods were my playground as a boy. So they fed my imagination and I cultivated a connection there just through play in my own little adventures out there. And I think that was the keystone put in place back then, actually. When I drifted away from that <coughs> as a young man, I got very involved in environmentalism and the politics of that at university, and, uh, but did a theatre degree. So a theatre degree gave me a huge amount or develop my confidence in the world, my self-confidence and self-awareness, but also a whole set of skills which have been really useful for education work. You know, all that presentation, communication stuff, interpersonal stuff. Brilliant, really. So then <coughs> I fell out of the theatre because that's a strange existence, mm. touring around endlessly doing that. Um, 
but I fell back in love with nature really and ended up working for Devon Wildlife Trust and that turned into an education officer role formally which for seven years down in Devon I did. Was um, Devon always home then? Was that, was that, was that your roots down no, here? No, I've put roots down here. I've lived here sort of six or seven times longer than I've lived anywhere else. So pretty itinerant as a kid and as a young man. And then when I moved here we had children so I wanted to give them a sense of place, mm. belonging. They have an answer, my children, to that question, where are you from? Whereas I've I've got to go into this long exploration of where mm. I started, then moved to, and, you know. So, <coughs> yeah, for the last 25 years, uh, I've been down in Devon, loving it down here. And, of course, this beautiful natural backdrop here, you know, has provided the context for my, my work. So when I left Devon Wildlife Trust, somewhat constrained upon a leash um, with a colleague, we set up Wildwise to just go a little further, deeper, and wilder. Yeah. Because uh, we saw the effect... And all we were allowed, you know, at that stage was to have kids for, you know, 24 hours, basically. And I saw the impact, you know, just in that, you know, short amount of time. I could see something had shifted and was different when they left from when they arrived. So I just wanted to explore going much f longer with them. So that's what we've done. Mm. And that was, I was just, I was looking at the thing, it was 1999, that's 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. It, next year will be our official 20th year. Yeah, so amazing. Let's have a party. Let's have a wild party. <laughs> so when when Wildwise started, was that because, um, I should know this, but I don't, but was that the, was it the um, the initial focus was around kids and youngsters and working with them in the natural environment? It was. We continued the work because the Devon Wildlife Trust that sort of abandoned it really. So we right. continued some of the education work with these we had this wonderful event called A Wild Night Out, uh, which I've been running for about seven years, <coughs> taking school children onto nature reserves. Um, so we continued that, and that was our backbone for the first few years, but then developed much more you know, adult courses and training. We had the good fortune at that stage. I was just, I'd just been doing some courses with Ray Mears. That whole world of bushcraft at the end of the 90s was opening up. Mm. And um, you know, he did some wonderful mentoring and came to Devon and, um, opened that door really where we could apply that sort of whole you know um, set of skills and educational possibilities with lots of different client groups so it's just opened out ever since the, you know ever since those times into all different client groups so there isn't really a client group that we exclude yeah um, and we've worked with sort of everybody really anyone who's prepared to cross that threshold of indoors to outdoors we will entertain educate, inform and hopefully encourage to yeah, develop their own practice, their own inquiry, their own confidence in uh in this wonderful, you know, resource of mother nature. Yeah. Well I was uh I mean 'cause I I mean I we first get when I did the your Call of the World course the first year of that with um with Schumacher and what what I mean, it, that, there's there's many things that blew my mind that year. But one of the first things I noticed about uh, how you design these approaches is there's a lot of creativity around uh, finding our own connection through through quite creative ways. And that that for me felt kind of that sort of blew my mind because I hadn't my at least my experience of environmental connection, let's say didn't never had that kind of that sense of you know creativity experimentation and that felt very that felt yeah that felt something very 
different. Tell, tell me about how that has come through in your work. Yeah, it's um, obviously that is my some of my inspiration and my dreaming as a boy it was in those realms, imaginal realms and creative play. I was just given that blessing, really, of time outdoors. And as we know from all the recent research, you know, people are more creative when they're given access to those outdoor spaces and mm. wild play spaces. So I think that was carried forward very much. The theatre stuff that I did, um, studied and what I did professionally very much encouraged that feels like the imagination is key here. It's the imagination that is going to get us out of this whole pile of trouble that we're in. Um, It's not only a very useful, you know, tool to uh, employ, but it's also a very enjoyable one. Yeah. And so I suppose there are endless invitations to make um, to for people to make connection. It's not everyone's cup of tea to rub sticks together, for example, which is you know one of the things we do, and it's a wonderful set of you know possibilities that indigenous um, way of life. It's deep and impactful and meaningful, but there are others, actually, that need to find another way into that connection, and so just leaning into that creative background, those that professional skill set, um, whether it's through story story making whether it's sort of some of those theatre-making sequences, mm. group-building, village-building processes. It's just sensing what's the right approach, you know, at different times for different groups of people. And also, you know, we're here, after all, to stretch people a little. So there's growth, so there's development. And sometimes the creative syllabus will do that, you know, just perfectly. So, yeah, we're not at all a kind of outward bound where it's competing against the elements and it's mm. all just physical stuff that has its place um i think we are about developing the heart you know connection things like awe and wonder and reverence they're not easy to facilitate in a way but i think there are ways to play around at the edges so that that can happen um and i guess that's what we're about to really maximise those opportunities for a deeper experience and connection. Mm. The whole rationale, Dan, is about falling in love. I mean, really is. Bottom line, fall in love with it, and of course it will follow that you will take care of it. Mm. So we're, we're, that's our business, really. We're sort of matchmakers. Yeah. Yeah. And it's... Um I mean, it's, it's making my head sort of want to go into all kinds of different directions, but it's, um, let's just talk about the experience bit and, you know, learning through experience and building different types of knowledge and intelligence that's not always through our heads. <laughs> and uh, and that, you know, that to me is just the area that I just feels such a sort of key area right now, this moment in time of different ways of knowing ourselves and the world we're in, because you know, with all the issues that we have going on, and at least it seems to me that so a big part of it is this this logic-driven way of, you know, thinking about the world and, you know, reductionist way of thinking about the world and, uh, you know, the, you know, an unwillingness to accept different forms of subjective knowledge and intelligence. And yet, at least when I've, you know, the experiences I've had uh through being a participant in your work, 
but then also then what I've taken on into my work and and obviously what you know the network that you see building is and you see it is that when when we have experience when we're able to build our own kind of when we can make sense of things in our own way almost <laughs> by being out into this kind of wider living world that's really powerful knowledge mm. and yet it feels weird that it's almost a privilege to have it if that makes sense you know i've got a colleague who's working with the um <coughs> bushman people in southern africa in the kalahari at <coughs> the moment and he's come back and he's talked about this a little bit it's very interesting because they don't in their language have a word for this connection yeah you know and they're explicit about that they said that you can't describe it in words it's a quality it's a it's a feeling and we're we're trying to sort of chase it down and hunt it down and 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 sort of quantify it or identify it right. and manage it and facilitate it and all of these things but at the end of the day i think they're right <laughs> these uh moments open up in any kind of applied you know experiential you know um process i think that's the best way to find your way into that sort of connection is just the business of doing. Mm. I mean, let's forget, we're no different, Dan, to our ancestors of, you know, 200,000 years ago in our physiology. We're actually the same. We're born with the same set of tools and awarenesses and capacities. And it doesn't take long for us to sort of wake those up and use so much more of ourselves. I mean, you know, our, even our brain capacity is very limited in our, you know, industrial kind of rational, you know, learning culture that we <laughs> foist upon our children mm. um, in school, it's very limited, actually. And 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 the tests they've done on, on the indigenous way of life, you know, they find that, you know, three times more of the brain capacity is being used. So even in that realm of knowing, you know, even in that realm of just the head stuff, right. you know, I still think we're limiting right. ourselves. Um, and uh, the beauty of the outdoors is it brings it all into some sort of you know integration really head, yeah. heart, hand stuff as Piaget would say it's all beautifully modelled in, in the outdoors and in forest schools in, in anything that you, you do in an experiential level so yeah, people come home that's their, that's their experience there is levels of awakening and arriving back and it feels it feels good mm. yeah, ultimately there's um there's a, a a phrase I've seen you write about time in nature will take us back to a time of simple curiosity. But so what? Why is it that something that is you know ultimately, as you say, is a, a sort of a simple thing? Why why have we lost that? Why do we have to? What 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 is it that's that's sort of a you know a natural space is that helping us find that again? Well, you know, you know as well as I. As a parent, uh, Dan, and any parents out there will have borne witness to that beautiful, natural, you know, curiosity that's in a child, and then watched it as their children have grown up and gone through school, watched it, uh, you know, atrophy or diminish as they've had to sort of cope with a set of, you know, parameters and expectations through a school syllabus. And a society that likes to think it has all the answers, I suppose, and everything, you know, out the hanging out there. I just, you know, I, I don't have a kind of, you know, explanation. So, um, yes, I'm no, I'm no uh, expert on 
uh, that aspect of where it all went wrong. Um, I can only speak in general terms, really. Yeah. I just know that nature um, cultivates that curiosity very naturally. And I think it's a muscle adults tend to have lost um, or, or, or not remembered that they have. And when we bring it back, it becomes this delightful process again. Adults particularly love reconnecting with that childlike self within. It's yeah. there in play, but I think in this business of curiosity, surrounded by these endless natural mysteries, you know, we encourage them very much to follow that curiosity, get into the presence of these mysteries, and then, you know, follow them up. Yeah. And then come back and tell us something about, you know, snails that they never knew or anything that they've borne witness to, um, whether it's a caterpillar hanging on a thread, you know, or the disappearance of certain creatures at certain times of year or whatever it is. Um, this becomes a wonderful bit of sort of natural storytelling. Yeah. When you when when you bother to find out and, and it of course creates kinship connection as well and it all stems from this wonderful thing called curiosity so it's very undervalued i think as a virtue curiosity we expect it in our young children we should really expect it of each other yeah um because it's just such a wonderful treasure trove of of mysteries to be curious about it's interesting that um I, i'm curious that i never knew a chicken could make a hen could be so noisy <laughs> um um I think what's put the mic under. It's got something to say. Um, uh, there's some, yeah, exactly. So, so I guess when I look at sort of you know um, the institutional world, and um, so the need for curiosity is 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 massive. But it, again, it's sort of it's almost as if there's something about that whole idea that it's almost a dream, a dreamlike sort of. Yes, you know, so it's almost. D- do we in our modern kind of you know societies it's almost like curiosity is like it's sort of like well it's not you know it sort of feels like it's not quite it's not it's not the thing that fits into it because it sort of implies kind of you know opening up versus closing down yes i see what you mean but really really (laughs) if we just dwell on that for a little bit longer we can track all of the great developments and breakthroughs you know transformations interventions um, throughout history as being, you know, arrived at through a process of getting curious. And even the greatest of them all, arguably, I suppose, which was this moment, this gorgeous moment when whoever it was, history doesn't record our ancestors, you know, figuring out this way of generating fire by being curious about it. Um, And look what that led to, you know, led to everything that we know today, really. Um, Led to me stinking of wood smoke this morning. There you go. Uh. Uh, so yes, it is undervalued within society. Um, well, maybe it's an ob- maybe it's an obedience thing. I'm get I'm sort of thinking of. There's some there's hmm. something I think about, hmm. you know, because curiosity for me implies also like a questioning, mm-hmm. and I I again this is my gut intuition. You know, I don't have the data, but my sense is particularly in in kind of. Mod, you know, modern education, modern corporations, modern institutions, questioning is not necessarily encouraged. There's a level of sort of, you know, 
is sort of what's important has sort of been defined almost. Mm. Um, I guess it's slightly different, but I guess it's just that if it is a muscle curiosity, you know, or it is, or it is you know, this ability to open and question and be and, and, and want to go deeper or want to understand. Um, but I also think, you know, if we can sort of shift the emphasis onto the facilitators, the educators, the teachers mm. uh, in this regard, you know, I would love them, this is generalising, but to be a little more curious about their students. I'd love them to bring that art of questioning, you know, back to the students. I mean, education, after all, originally was, you know, a word meaning drawing out what's already there. Yeah. And I think there's far too much instruction in education where we're sort of trying to pack it in to these youngsters. In fact, there's genius, you know, as the uh, Native American people say, there's genius lodged in the gut, you know, um, of everyone born. And it's a case of finding it. And so, you know, that art of questioning curiosity applied to the learners um, to just follow their particular interests and ideas and thoughts. And I, I think, you know, produces um, you know, really uh, much more advanced citizens, much mm. more resilient and creative uh, people, which we desperately need at the moment. I mean, the alternative school system, some of them, like the Summerhill model, you know, is very much following the sort of passions and interests of the children. Yeah. And I know several examples of where that led to just real expertise, you know, and, and wonderful kind of careers because they were indulged with their interests. Yeah. You know? um, and I think... I mean, in a way, Dan, my job's quite easy because so many of our visitors, clients, customers, you know, are um, just keen and interested, yeah. you know, already to uh, to learn in, in the setting that we, we can provide. And I think that helps. And I wish schools, of course, and education establishments would use it, lean into it so much more yeah. because... All the research backs up. People learn better in the outdoors. You know, they're more stimulated and supported. And it's where we belong. Yeah. You know. Yeah. We're not locked up in these institutions, but. Yeah. Anyway, I could go on. No, no, no. Um, tell me about the. Um, so when the the Call of the Wild started with Schumacher, tell me about that relationship and why that felt. What? Yeah. Just. What, yeah. What the. Um, I mean, the original inspiration really was just dr a dreaming one. Yeah. What you know, and asking myself, you know, what would I, what I've wanted, you know, in my early twenties when I was just sort of embarking on this <coughs> whole kind of vocation and career. Um, what would have been really useful to have been exposed to at that stage in my life? So it's sort of working backwards, designing a syllabus with all these different sort of inputs, all these different stimulus. Um, uh, for people to make further investigation. So the Call of the Wild journey opens out all these realms about, you know, the indigenous self and the imaginative creative self and the awareness, you know, in the world of tracking and field craft and, um, you know, realms of the heart and our emotional, you know, uh, engagement and response to, you know, what's happening in the world. All these subject areas are introduced. And this gives... Um, well, a real stimulus, you know, for further learning. So we can't package it all up. It would be a 12-year course, of course, <laughs> if we wanted to sort of attend to all of it. But um, but what we do is just, yeah, just offer the stimulus, really. And the students, you know, pick it up and they run with it and they go off and perhaps they'll do a further training in, you know, particular something that they find affinity for or real interest in. 
So it was my real sort of backwards dreaming, I suppose, about what would have been a really supportive, you know, year journey. Mm. So I'm pleased to sort of report it's uh, it has been very useful and students have done some wonderful things with it. And have you found, because what is it now? Is it si- sixth year, seventh year? Seven. Seventh year. I mean, you must have learned a lot about how it works and what peop- what people are coming and bringing with them into yeah, this. I have. Yeah. And I've also learned, as I have through the, my practice over the years, just to lean into the genius lodged in their guts because, you know, people bring all sorts of things. And so it's hopeless to try and sort of fix everything, really. Just allow space for things to emerge. You know, that's been a kind of, I suppose that's the more mature um, learning that I've, you know, um, benefited from. And yes, and that means it it has a sort of rough shape and then different things can happen. Different things can emerge during the year according to who's there and what they're bringing. Yeah, it's a very... um was chatting last night uh, briefly about this to some of the other folks from who've been on that journey mm. and we're j- just saying it's a it's it's such a powerful experience so much happens much of it you can't really make sense of <laughs> in a, you know in a mm. you know in a sort of again in a sort of rational way <laughs> um, and we were talking about actually when you I can remember sort of coming you know coming heading back back into the constructed world uh, that I'm a part of after these sessions in Devon and and, uh, and, and trying to kind of <laughs> recount what had happened and yes. met with all kinds of confusion and sort of, you know. Yeah, there's a fair amount we, can't, we, we can write about, but there's a fair amount we can't. Yeah. It doesn't really go into words and it's a bit unexpected and yeah. people have been, and I too have been surprised by how deep and transformative the journey is. I mean, Dan, it's in a way the recipe itself is quite simple, gathering, yeah. you know, gathering around the hearth living as a community, really, in these sort of immersions for four days at a time. There's something in that that's really potent and deep and and awakening and challenging, you know, on a, on a perspective on, on how our lives are lived in the everyday, you know. Mm. And that goes pretty deep. I think it speaks to the longing that we have for village life again mm. and the connection again, connection to community and, and, um, and the natural world. And it does... Uh, it does disturb at some level and ask some deep questions, even though that's not explicitly on the, the syllabus. That's definitely been a feature all the way through. Mm. Um, yeah. And it's, yeah. And I, I mean, I've come, I've come to sort of believe that, you know, valuable learning, good learning should have some disturbance in it because mm. that's, that's absolutely, that's, that's where the, where the, where the growth happens. And yep. Um, just on that, because um, I've heard quite a few people talking uh, almost of going back. And it feels to me that there's a sort of an almost an allergicness in our techno modern world to this idea of going back for knowledge or or wisdom or, or, or whatever it might be. But it seems to me like we're insane not to be drawing back because of all the intelligence and learning that sits in our past and it, you know whether it's how to live in community whether it's how to be more in tune with you know the natural cycles of this planet whatever it might you know there's there's a lot there but what what why is it do you think what is it that's that we're in this kind of world that seems to yeah it's almost like if it's not new and forward and it's almost like we let go of all these things because there's a sense that 
you know, the future is where the improvement mm. happens. I don't know. Well, I, I, I mean, I don't know. Um, really, Dan, I speculate it goes back to the age of reason, you know, that mechanistic time of um, Descartes and Francis Bacon and all those kind of sinister men yeah. who cast this spell <coughs> over our world, give us this sort of industrial mindset that looked at back at, you know, primitive society um, as, you know, a diminished form of society. Dan, I've just been in Australia mm. and reading this marvellous book called Dark Emu by an Aboriginal elder because more and more evidence is surfacing that, in fact, the Aboriginal community there, you know, uh, were incredibly sophisticated, very civilised, you know, villages of a thousand people with permanent structures and genius, you know, sort of permaculture-style kind of systems of of flourishing and thriving in difficult environments. I mean, so moving and beautiful and, you know, symptomatically, of course, we didn't record that. Mm. All we recorded was the sort of, you know, the, the primitive savage aspect. Um, and I think, you know, that is... A symptom of just generally how we've looked at, you know, looked backwards over the last few hundred years since that time. Uh, you're absolutely right. There's deep intelligence and wisdom, you know, and we know it when we lean into what's preserved of those societies that are still, you know, able to cling on the Native American people, for example. Um, and it's suffused with a sort of wisdom that our society can't ever generate because it's distilled of a through a continuum of 40,000 years of living and what it is to be a human being on this earth. and You know, with a humility as well, that we're not the most important things, creatures on the planet, which is our current disease that we have, you know, like our affluenza. We've, mm. we're, we're diseased with this sort of ethnocentrism, unfortunately, um, where we're obsessed with ourselves and forgot, actually, we're just, you know, just one of many interconnected you know, beings um, sharing this precious resource. So I, I personally, I think it goes back to to that spell, mm. you know, in that age of so-called enlightenment. Um, and it, we've been stuck in that paradigm, basically that industrial growth paradigm ever since. I, do, I remember, you know, lectures on it um, where they would do the experiments on the animals, you know, and they would reassure the audience that, uh, you know, these noises that a dog being experimented on, a live dog, was nothing more than the creakings of a machine. Right. That they didn't have feelings, you know. this It's this sort of mindset, unfortunately, that's that separated us, you know. Um, and we are, not surprisingly, lonely, and we're suffering a kind of emptiness of spirit because we're not connected anymore. That beautiful book, Braiding Sweetgrass, by Robin Wall Kimmerer, she talks about how in the language of those peoples out west in uh, Native America, how there were the pronouns were all he and she. There was no it in the language. And fundamentally, you know, that conveys a deep wisdom and a reflection of, you know, the connectedness that you would feel with all living things. You know, when they're given those pronouns, it, there's, a, there's a relationship there where uh, the word it you know, sort of deadens things, mm. you know. Mm. Who is, because um, you've been, am I right am I or wrong here, but you've been furthering your practice. I mean, you who who you been, I mean, who do you, who inspires you to keep doing the work you're doing? And 
who who are you learning from beyond the the living world? Well, beyond the living world, I mean, first thing is m- the students who come They're endlessly. Um, my teachers, in terms of how they respond and, and how they live and work, and, and you know, what they share about their journey, you know, that's a huge part of it. It's very reciprocal. Uh, that, and um, you know, there's been many sort of champions and heroes. You know, people far away, um, like Joanna Macy, who's sort of in the last flickering embers of her gorgeous, extraordinary life, for example. Um, many of those poets, like Mary Oliver, who's also sadly passed, mm. you know, so many of them really are so helpful. Um, my sort of current teachers, I suppose, are Bill Plotkin, Janine um, Mary Haugen, who work at the Animus Valley in America and work in this beautiful, far-reaching um, way with the sort of Vision Fast and Vision Quest process as a sort of foundation of the work. And but really cultivate the imaginal realms and cultivate the um, development and maturation um, towards elderhood. Really, that's their business: is how do we grow, you know, elders that we've sadly uh, had to live without. I don't mean I'm just drawing a distinction here yes. between old people and elders. Yeah, and right. Elderhood. Um, how would you which is in, that? Well, it's in very short supply, isn't it? Because mm. we don't have that kind of upbringing, <laughs> mentoring and eldering ourselves anymore. And so that, that sort of link has been broken. But they're, they're attempting, you know, to put it back and, and bring in that sort of consciousness mm. to, uh, um, to create sort of artisans who are going to really make a difference in this world this troubled world of yeah you know. i was stra- i was chatting about this recently i've I'm, I'm been quite troubled recently about the um well, <laughs> lots of things but one of the things that's sort of very alive for me at the moment is the the youth climate strikes and yes. seeing yes, the really. youngsters yeah. stepping forward and i've been going on marches mm. with my son and thing but mm. but on on one hand there's this sort of you know it's the energy coming from this generation is is you know it's it's amazing to feel and sense and see but on the other hand there's a i feel quite ashamed and i still like i'm this high state that the the as you say like i wouldn't call them the elders because there are no else but this sort of older generation they're not you know we're sort of we're sort of watching them almost it's just it feels like bizarre mm. you know like it that there's there's no holding of them in a time like this you know mm. and and what's troubling me is some of the narrative that start to emerge about, you know, all the, you know, the youth are going to change the world, you know, and it's like, at least the conversations I've had is that they really don't want to be doing this, and they certainly don't want to be seen as the people with the answers, and you know, the, or or, or like good luck, sort it out kind of mm. mode. And this brings me back to that whole elder, you know, and children and. What, you know, what is it that we're living for? I know. I Who know. are we protecting? It's very troubling, and you know, it's I'm sh- it's it's a big conversation yeah. and a wide conversation. You know, that's going on, and particularly it it sort of also we pick up on the mentoring side of things as well because you know we know that kids and young people and young men and young women are are desperate really for a kind of meaningful you know relationship with a, you know an adult community, yeah. and it's sadly lacking. I mean, this is one of the reasons why we have these year programs for young you know, young boys and young, young girls is just to try to put something in place that isn't a one-stop shop, a quick hit, <coughs> but yeah. it's something more sustained. And it is it is in the absence of eldering. But those those mentors that we work with, of course, they're, they've they got their own mentors who are older, and so there is a chain. And, you know, you've just got to find your way, haven't you? Follow your nose and <coughs> um, 
and find where they are because there's no doubt there's a lot of wise people around mm. it's just that as a society we're not really breeding it and we're not thinking long term we're not thinking how do we grow elders yeah we're just thinking you know how do we make productive you know members of society that yes. can contribute grow to economies. GDP um, so it's a very different emphasis that but it is a crisis I would say of elder, yeah. eldership now um, so well, we're, we're yeah. working on it in our own way yeah. but I do also feel like the natural world is the most extraordinary mentor and elder as well. Yeah. If we're awake and open and listening, there is a, a remarkable discourse <coughs> available. And that's that's what, you know, Bill Plotkin and um, Murray Van Haugen and the Animus Institute are all about, is leaning into that. And, you know, basically with your 10,000-year-old ears, listening in, deep listening. And there's a, there's a remarkable dialogue. Yeah. Mm. And it's sort of, I mean, I, you know, my year with you six years or whatever it was ago you know came on the back of a, a lot of journeying i've been doing but it's been so the key thing that for me and i'm not always great at it but i but i think i, I have built it, is the integrate integrating what i what i discovered through that journey and some of the practices but also just actually a um a sense of aliveness that i managed to cultivate that allow has allowed me to to sense my way a lot more mm. through life mm. but the the thing i have and i think it's connected as well to this elders piece is like how we then show up in our daily lives feels like it's such it's a big part of this right because we can go on experiences and we can go on learning journeys and we can go on all these great things but it's then how do we bring them back you know because that's always that you know how do i yeah. How do I practice as an elder? How do I, you know, I mean, all these kind of questions. And I, I wonder whether, and I think that's, you know, that's where, because it's, in, it's, it's as I say, it's this question, it's not, we don't need any more sort of, it's a phrase I love at the moment. It's like, no, we don't need any more sort of technology breakthroughs. We just need more breakthroughs of what it means to be human, you know, mm. and, and how we show up in our day to day. But I wonder if what you've, if you had thoughts, because obviously you've seen, you know, you've worked with, huge amounts of people journeying H how yeah what wh how do you see that do you think we st we still struggle with making these shifts in our well we can do we can have these deep and transformative experiences <coughs> you know on location somewhere on some course or workshop or something and then as you say integrating it back is is can be a difficult business i'd you know my recommendation is to make yourself accountable of course to more than um yourself <laughs> yeah. otherwise we can fall into those habits and patterns and <coughs> take you know evade the issues very easily and this let's not forget this world is you know a seductive world with many diversions and distractions and really an invested interest in not having you you know in your empowered you know self so um you need to build structures, really. And just like we have, you know, on the Call of the Wild program, we've got a sort of village structure in place. And what shows up is the sort of the best of you in that setting. And so I think when you go home, the thing to do is to, you know, um, find some allies, declare, you know, what, you, what your aspirations and dreams and longings are, and then have them hold you to account. And you'll find that that helps you, you know, um, help steady the course. It's not a kind of, you know, magic wand exactly, but it's so helpful when you have some sort of structure yeah, to support you in that, that believes in that, you know. Not the sort of allies that are going to undermine it and challenging it because it's threatening to them, but 
either sort of people, and that might be people from the course, and so that's one of the structures we have in place, is a sort of system whereby people on the course can support each other, you know, to keep it going. Yeah. It's no doubt it's challenging, no yeah. doubt at all. It's not a congruent, coherent world, is it, anymore? It no. would have been once. <coughs> you know, it was all sort of part of the same whole. It was all integrated, and it's not now, you know. So uh, we have to work at that, and I think that's the way, is just make ourselves more accountable to others. Um, yeah. it's, it's interesting, um, as you've been talking about the elder piece, it's making me think about that, how, you know, yeah, like we have, it feels like there's a real need to help help people become elders. Yeah. You know, because yeah. there's lots of us that are entering yeah. another phase. I know, and we lives. need eldering. Right. <laughs> Otherwise, we're making it up as we go along. Yeah, right. We? And we might, we might do well at that. Yeah. You know, um, I think generally we won't, but there'll certainly be exceptions. You know, there are other elders, aren't there? That <laughs> the great genius and wisdom of, you know, some books and authors, you know, past and that share some of that. So of course we have to sort of lean into what elder symbols and resources are around us in that form as well. You know, if it's not in the living flesh, we do have that. I mean, I like to think of the, even the field guides in in terms of nature and nature connection as that they're a sort of form of elder uh-huh. of people who've studied, you know, and uh, disseminate their wisdom. So I think we just have to be artful, creative, and stumble our way along. But I think with the intention, um, we'll arrive at something that we can pass on and hopefully that then grows, you know, to be something more, the next generation and so on and so forth. Uh, but there's no doubt we're up against it. Last question for you, because um, I'm conscious of time. Um, it's probably a bit of a bit, it's probably something we could go on a lot about because we haven't really talked about so much, which I know is a big part of you, which is stories. Um, stories, they're, they're a big part of your life, right? How do... <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about that? Oh, God. (laughs) I don't know how to sum that up. I use uh, story a lot, narrative skills a lot, the business of communicating um, story at the right time seems to affect things. (laughs) Yeah. There's a certain sort of listening that people do, which is different. Um, And I'm talking about, for the large part, I'm talking about traditional narratives. Those that have endured and survived... Um, for a long time, travelled perhaps through different cultures. Stories very promiscuous. They've they've charged all over the world really as people have travelled um, and interacted with different cultures. But but these ones that remain, you know, they've got hidden gems in them. They've got deep wisdom. They're all about what it is to be a human being, and they can make a wonderful commentary on an activity that you've been doing or help to make sense. There's a it so feeds the imagination. It's so good to feed images in um, that are not perceived. You know, a, a story that gets told, say, around a campfire. Everyone owns that story. You know, they've they've worked at creating the images as the story unfolds. No one has the same images. Everyone finds themselves perhaps lost in a different place in the story or bothered by a different you know, event in the story or inspired by something or just drawn to something. It's very different, that experience of listening. <coughs> um, 
active listening than it would be, say, to see the Hollywood movie of that story, which mm. is a wonderful experience in itself, but everyone's seeing someone else's imagination and they're all seeing the same thing. And it just somehow enriches in ways that are constantly mysterious to me. Um, enriches a, the experience um, of being a human being. It's a very natural sort of habitat for human beings to sit down and listen to a story. Um, you know, not any story, not a story told at the wrong time, not a story not told very well, you know. So there is a craft here, and um, and it takes a degree of, I think, experience to know when's the right time and what's the right story. But there isn't a more effective tool for influencing. You know, think about it, Dan. It's um, We're living in these troubled times Let's say everyone is either consciously or unconsciously completely daunted and overwhelmed by the trouble we're in. They're either in touch with that or they're not. But you know, all these old stories, fundamentally, they're about an individual um, triumphing or finding their way through navigating um, you know, the terrain in overwhelming odds. And we need to hear those stories mm. again and again and again. And if they are fanciful... You know, if they don't appear to relate to this modern world, well, that's fine. As G.K. Chesterton said, you know, it's not it doesn't matter whether dragons really exist or not. It's what matters is whether they can be beaten. And these messages are sort of so important for us, but also for our soul life. You know, we do have a soul life, and this world that we live in doesn't doesn't do very well in recognizing that. You know, it does some it does better at recognizing our spiritual aspect. But I think our soul life is fed by, you know, stories, it's fed by dreams and, you know, it needs taken care of and it will ultimately, you know, need to be um, activated to help drive us, you know, forward into a more, you know, um, well, a different future than we've, we're facing at the moment. So, yeah, I mean, I could go on for days, really, about the magic and enchantment and the importance of uh, of stories. Um but we don't have time. Do you still do the festival? Do you still do the... Yeah. So we've been doing the West Country Storytelling Festival for many years and now the all-new Oxford Storytelling Festival um, took place for the first time last uh, last August. So look out for that. It's a smorgasbord of stories and storytellers and different flavours of things. So, yeah. And you're not Chris Salisbury, are you, in the in your story? Uh, <laughs> well, it's an old... It was, yes, thanks for bringing that up. It's an old... Yeah, sometimes, <laughs> you know, in the business of performance storytelling particularly, so that's the sort of stage, people yeah. paying money, it can be helpful to have a kind of alter ego, Yeah, you know, sometimes a little sub-personality, and that might be done with a bit of costume, um, and in that, in this regard, you know, the use of a different name, and when I was telling lots of stories to kids, you know, I was I was known as Spindle Wayfarer. Absolutely, uh, the legend Spindle Wayfarer. I don't <laughs> use it much anymore, <laughs> I'm not in the habit of doing much of that performance yeah. storytelling but um so like i was dan solo when i was a techno dj you know <laughs> god <laughs> bet you regret that now <laughs> it's my twitter handle these days so. <laughs> anyway um chris just quickly quickly where, where where um two things if people are interested in want to know more um what should they do sure like, well from the story point of view look up Oxford Storytelling Festival. Yeah. That website's still alive and kicking. I'll put that in there. <coughs> and, that um, you know, obviously Wildwise yeah. events down here in Devon, you know, for all the different things we're doing here. Uh, yep. 
Brilliant. Thank you very much for this conversation. You're very welcome. I've enjoyed yeah, it, Dan. Good. What a nice job you have. Well, it's, you know, <laughs> no one pays me, but it's... <laughs> but that's, you know, I've been doing that most of my life, so that's nothing new. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Um, well, I wish you um, a good year, and I'll be, I'll be seeing you, I'm sure. Yeah, thank you, Dan. Yeah, thanks thanks very much. Thank you. Good on you. So that was Chris Salisbury um, from... Wildwise in Devon. I hope you enjoyed listening um, to that. It was a great conversation. I love hanging out with Chris. Uh, reminded me that I miss his presence. Um, so yes, um, check out Wildwise. I'll put some links in. They're doing all kinds of interesting courses, um, as mentioned. Um, not least the collaboration with Schumacher College down in Devon, Call of the Wild. Um, if you're looking to um, shake your life up somewhat. Uh, and go deep and explore beyond what you know I would thoroughly recommend that course um, so yeah thanks for listening um, uh, if you like what you're hearing um, give us a like uh, or even a little cheeky review on Apple Podcasts it all helps it brings these podcasts up to the surface and helps other people discover it or share it wherever you can. Um, it's really appreciated, yes. Um, and it's lovely to get a few comments in from those. So uh, whatever you do, if this um, provokes you somehow in any way, um, drop us a line, uh, dan at thespaceship.earth, or you can get me on Instagram at Dan Solos, on Twitter at Dan Solo. You know now, if you've listened to this, you know where the Dan Solo comes from. It was my DJ name back in the early 90s and for um, a good 10 years. And I've kept that little handle. So there you go. Um, rebellions. It's all about rebellions. Uh, rebellions of the heart and all that great jazz. Um, yeah. I've lost my thread. I was looking at, I think it's a nut hatch on the wall outside my studio. So there you go. The nut hatch has appeared. Wonderful little thing. Um, so yeah, thanks for those that are supporting the podcast. As I say, really appreciated. You can check them all out now at thespaceship.earth. Um, they're all up there, and um, you can access this now via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, SoundCloud. Um, yeah, um, anywhere you want, really. So. Um, yeah, enjoy. There's lots more coming. Um, I also wanted to give a shout out. I've sold a few T-shirts. Um, so uh, I was speaking um, actually at a conference quite recently and someone asked me where I was from and I, and I said I'm uh, a citizen of the earth, of the planet. I'm an earthling. I like that term. So I made a T-shirt. Um, it's a T-shirt. You can... Um, it's got earthling on it. I'll put a picture in the show notes. Um... And in the last month, uh, this is a quick shout out. So Joanna's bought one, Dean's bought one, Galfam's bought two, and Mark's bought one. So there you go. Thank you very much, you lovely, lovely people. And um, if you fancy one, um, you can link from, you can find the link to the store. Um, it's run by T Mill. They're all um, wonderful organic cotton and printed in a wind powered factory on the Isle of Wight. Uh, and they look quite nice. So, yeah, that would be nice. And if you do have one, and you know, and, and you buy one and wear it, um, it will be great to see it out in the wild. Send me a picture. That'd be lovely. Um, so, yeah, you can find that from a link out to that through, if you go to the spaceship.earth, you'll see a little tab in the nav says merch. And uh, that will take you to there where you can 
purchase an Earthling t-shirt and support the ongoing journey of the Spaceship Earth podcast. Um, anyway, be well out there. Take care of yourselves. Uh, remember, folks, there are no passengers on Spaceship Earth. We're all crew. Um, until next time, peace and out. Peace and out.